0: Well, grace and peace to you. Good morning. Today we are continuing in a series that we've been going through the last three weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jones preached on the value of our church of worship. And then last week on outreach, I have the privilege of preaching on discipleship this morning. And next week we'll hear from Pastor Jones again on covenant life. And if you'd turn in your Bibles, we're looking at the topic, the value of discipleship through the lens of John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. If you're using Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 894. And this is a challenging topic for us to consider. Uh, It's a hard one for me to consider preaching on because uh, every passage in the Bible in many ways is about discipleship. And, uh, and if we were to take that alone, uh, uh, that's one topic, but if we were to look at it through the lens of John 8, I could spend a lot longer also just looking at John chapter 8. So there's much to be said, and uh, you'll have to bear with me as we look at this passage. But this is a good passage for us to look at because this is a passage in which Jesus describes what it means to be his disciple. Little theologians, uh, if you are permitted by your parents, would you consider drawing a picture, a picture of Pastor John in his black ministerial robe? So you've got you've got them right there. You can draw a picture of don't draw me. I'd be too big. It'd be all black. But if you but if you draw Pastor Jones and uh, we'll talk about that a little later, I would love, by the way, to see those afterwards. Well, it's the Lord who speaks truth into our lives. It's the Lord who's more honest than any good friend. And he speaks truth to us because he loves us. Because he actually cares about our growth. And so would you quiet your hearts right now and let's hear from God's word from John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God will stand forever would you pray with me oh our gracious heavenly father we know you to be the source of truth the source of our lives so we ask that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear who you are who we are in your word Help us to find the joy and delight of following you as so we look to you as our sure foundation for our lives. I pray all this asking for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know the value of freedom. We know the value of freedom. I was reading a news article just a few days ago. And it was discussing or sharing about how the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C. has taken on a new role, a surprising role for them, one of Recruitment Center. American citizens by the thousands have reached out to the Ukrainian embassy to ask for ways that they can go and fight for Ukrainian freedom. Thousands of offers of volunteers. And as he was sharing about this the major general who serves as the Ukrainian military attaché he said this he said this is not mission uh, this is not mercenaries who are coming to earn money this is people of goodwill who are coming to assist Ukraine fight for freedom American volunteers who pass key requirements will join the International Legion of Territorial Defense of Ukraine, made up of 20,000 volunteers, foreigners, who've already joined from different parts of the world for freedom. Many of the American volunteers, this article went on to say, have been sent back because they didn't meet key requirements. One of those requirements is an age requirement as young as 16-year-old boy volunteering, sent away and as old as a 73-year-old man sent back. It's like sending render to war. We know the value of freedom, don't we? And we know this value of freedom because we know the cost of that freedom. Well, the ancient Israelites should have known the value of freedom. They should have understood what freedom is like. The the Jews who are in this passage in John chapter 8 should have dearly understood what freedom meant. You see, in chapter 7 of John, if we were to back up to the previous chapter to give some context, the Israelites were celebrating one of their great festivals. It's called the Feast of Booths. So the Lord actually commands them to celebrate this in Leviticus 23, and it was a party. In fact, uh, Greek historians, when they look at, at, or when they recorded the history of the Jews, they would call this by observing it, the Feast of the Jews. We talk a lot about Passover, but it seems like this was the festival that in many ways they were known for, whole towns being abandoned so that they could participate in this celebration and it's called the Feast of Booths because they would build these little structures and they put palm branches on them. And there's descriptions in the, in the history, uh, 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 descriptions of how, how they would decorate them with fruit and celebrating God's provision. And so the whole week would be filled with fun, fellowship, food, together as God's people. Why did God command this? commanded them to celebrate he commanded them to feast because it was a reminder of what god had done bringing them out of egypt and putting them in tents for a season of time in the wilderness before he would establish them as a nation in canaan they were to be reminded every year they were, was going to be part of their identity that they would celebrate the freedom that the lord god brought to them when they were slaves slaves in egypt God, as an aside, just think about this. God loves you so much that he commands you to celebrate the things that are worth celebrating. He calls you to rejoice and to feast in that which is worth celebrating. And freedom from enslavement, the Lord commands his people to celebrate. Well, in the passage this morning, it's in the context of the Israelites on their annual celebration of this feast, and as they are, are in the midst of this feast, there's, there's a lot of talk. In all of chapter seven and chapter eight, there's discussions and questions, and they resol- revolve around this person, the Lord Jesus. Questions as to who he is, Is he the Christ? Is he a prophet? Some of the officers, as they were hearing his teaching, would even say that they've never heard anyone speak like this man. How can he teach so well without training? They would ask. Well, Jesus would tell them in these passages that precede this text He would tell them that He's the light of the world, He's a judge, He's the one who comes from above, from His Heavenly Father. He would tell them in verse 24 of chapter 8, he is the one who will die for their sins. And in verse 30, we're told that many believed. And in verse 31, which is the beginning of our text, Jesus is addressing those who have believed him, the many that were there. But the conversation shifts in this section from talking about who he is to now talking about who they are. Jesus tells those who believe in him and his word that this faith in him is only the beginning of what it means to become a disciple. For sure, it's a a requirement. But those who value freedom will seek to grow ultimately in their understanding of truth. True disciples, true discipleship, as we see in this passage, as we're going to see, is the Lord's growth in his people in the truth as they abide in his word. In this passage, Jesus engages true discipleship in one of three ways, well, in three different ways. He First of all, he tells us, uh, he addresses our understanding of the truth. We must know the truth. The second way is that he addresses our actions. If we know the truth, then they'll flow out of that knowledge. And the third way is he addresses our identities, how we define ourselves. Those are ways we grow in discipleship. The ways we know, the ways we act or do, and the ways we be the ways we are. That's our identity. Let's look at that first one. We must know the truth. If you look with me in verse 31, this is the beginning verse, as Jesus speaks to these believing Jews, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus begins with this most beautiful desire. For them to know true freedom the Lord wants you to know real freedom he wants you to be free and he puts a conditional clause on it if you abide in my word you'll experience truth and freedom we'll talk about what it means to abide a little later but but here that that part of knowing this freedom is knowing God's word, Jesus' word, means studying it, tending to it. But it also means listening it to ways that are sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes that are hard. All of God's word teaches on who he is, the Lord God, and teaches who we are. And it can be hard to hear the truth about who we are or who he is. These young believers uh, who are in Jesus' midst right now, they're not free. And as they hear Jesus' word that they need to be free, they become indignant at Jesus' claim. They resist it. They want to deny it. In fact, they respond in this way. They say, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, just give that a pause for a second. What did we just celebrate in the Feast of Booths? And it's like they've forgotten. They've forgotten their story. They've forgotten their identity. They've forgotten who they are. They've forgotten Egypt and Babylon, Persia and Syria. They've forgotten the bondage to Rome that they are currently under why do they forget these things why do they resist this perhaps it's too painful perhaps they're too indignant but whatever the reason these young believers are so unwilling to accept God's truth God's word that it will lead in such a long conversation that at the end of chapter 8 they will pick up stones to hurl at him They who believe in the one who is the light of the world or who said he is the light of the world. They are going to seek to kill him. And even if the Israelites had never been slaves and what they may have said was politically true, they've diminished the the truth from which they believe the light of the world has spoken to them to listen to them well enough to hear that they are not just enslaved to the Romans, they're even in a more greater way enslaved to sin. And how desperate they needed to hear this. You see, they were comfortable with a God who saved them almost two millennia ago, as long as he stayed distant from the truth in their hearts right now. Perhaps these are the kinds of disciples that Jesus cautions us about in Matthew 13 who hear soil that hears God's words but becomes choked by thorns. But we also don't know if these are disciples who heard and perhaps even sometimes like us when we initially hear truth, we resisted, and, and perhaps over time they repented. Because I know in my own experience, it's hard to hear truth. I don't like it when it touches the deep, hard, sinful parts of my life. I want to be my wife's hero. It's hard to hear when I fail her. I don't want to hear how my life is struggling. At times, we all find ourselves wanting to change the subject with close friends who call us out in the truth. We seek to sometimes ignore certain topics. We can even miss doctor appointments because we struggle with the truth. And I can know and acknowledge the truth in my struggles right now because I know I have a King who loves me. Because I know that in Christ, as I look to Him, as I listen to what His Word says in the fullness of it, I know that my greatest pain pales to the thought of the reality of me belonging to him, loved, cared for, forgiven, received. It's his truth that actually sets us free so that we can spend time knowing truth. Songwriter Rich Mullins said in one of his songs, Surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. Discipleship is growing to know God's word so that we would see more and more of who he is and more and more of how desperate we are for him. His love for us. It means we must know his word, but it also means we must obey his word. Some of you may have heard this phrase. You may have heard that good theology leads to good living healthy theology leads to healthy living Jesus is referring to healthy action in this passage look with me in verse 38 Jesus says I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you've heard from your father Jesus is saying here that what you believe to be true is evidenced in your actions. There's an observable demonstration of your knowledge because of the way you live your life. In the ancient Israelite minds, knowledge wasn't simply cognitive. It wasn't something that we just knew. Knowledge was something that that led to action in the world. No matter how much I say I know about dieting and exercising, I don't truly know what it's like until I diet and exercise. I experience that. I live it out. And Jesus speaks of freedom that comes to disciples in the truth by the way that they live out that knowledge. The freedom to resist sin, to live differently and contribute and participate in God's mission in the kingdom of God disciple of Jesus is experiencing freedom by no longer orienting their lives around themselves but is learning to act in ways that orient their lives around the Lord giving their life away I watched a short little video clip a few weeks ago Uh, it's circling around the world of social media And I have to admit that I've never seen this full show. I just saw this small little minute clip uh, of a show that was a talk show in the 90s called The Jenny Jones Show. It's a daytime tabloid TV show. And the episode that this little clip is on was called Boot Camp My Preteen. And apparently the premise seems to be that all these really hard kids who weren't listening to their parents, who were causing destructive patterns in society or at school or in their homes, they were brought on this show and a drill instructor was brought on to basically scare, scare them into obedience, to yell at them. Well, this short little video is this drill sergeant doing exactly that in the face of this young boy, perhaps about eight or nine, yelling at him telling him that he should, should always obey his mom. He doesn't know what, what, what dangers there are if he disobeys. And he gets to this question where he says, and do you want me to be your daddy? And without a hesitation, the young boy says, yes, sir. And the drill instructor is left speechless in this moment. And he looks around and he, he turns back to the child and he says, why do you want me to be your daddy? And the boy says, I have no daddy. And the drill inspector gets down and hugs the boy, puts his arm around him and walks him off the stage. You see, our actions reflect our dad. And who we know to be our father directly impacts how we live in the world. We know we have a good father, a father who sends his son into the world to lay his life down for us. Discipleship is learning to bring our actions in alignment to what we know about God. His goodness, His love, His wisdom and justice. Our actions reflect what is true about who our Father is. And this leads to the final point this morning. We must abide in the identity that comes from Him. Let's return back to verse 31. Let's look at this word abide. What does it mean? Well, this word is actually used by Jesus three times, even though it's translated as abide here. In verse 35, it's the same word Jesus says when he says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains or abides forever. It's the same word the word abide means to remain in something it's more than just a physical presence though to abide is to permeate we permeate a home when we're a son if you were to go around our house today you would see that i have two sons in just about every room of our house The knowledge of my son's permeates, whether it's on a picture or whether it's in dirty socks on the floor. There is a permeation of the knowledge of my son that he abides in our home. Jesus is telling us that believers who trust in God's word abide in it. They allow it to take root in their hearts. And it so permeates the minds and hearts that it transforms our identities so that we are known by his word, by the way we live our lives. It remains in us in times of great health. It remains in us when things are hard and there's great sorrow. And it transforms us from being slaves to sin because of Christ's work on our behalf and to be adopted sons. Our whole identity has changed. We are now children of a living God we have all sorts of identities that you use when you introduce yourself you likely introduce yourself by either what you do or in what relationship you're in I'm a teacher I'm an engineer I'm a pastor or I'm a parent or I'm a fiance or I'm a son we often use our identities to describe to describe us because they help to define and express that definition to others. The Lord is telling us that that what he desires for us in freedom, what he desires for us to know is that we would be sons and daughters of the king, that that would take our predominant identity. That would be how we would live out, unafraid of what is to come because we have a God who loves us as a father. Fear has no place in the house of a son other than a reverent holy fear for one's father. Do you trust in the Lord's identity? Do you trust that you belong to him in such a way that it's better to be with him in a den full of lions than to be anywhere else? Better to be with him, alive in him in a fiery furnace than to be away from him anywhere else. This means we do things differently. It means that we don't get on looking for the news because we're afraid of what might happen in foreign nations. It means we trust and look on the news to see how God is at work and how he's going to redeem all circumstances in life with his purposes. We trust him in that, and that is freeing. It frees us from the anxieties and the fears and the struggles of the day. Jesus wants you to be free of those things. He wants you to abide as a son and daughter. Well, at the beginning, I asked you, especially the young theologians to draw a picture of Pastor Jones in his ministerial black robe. Some of you know why we wear this robe. It's not just to hide all the stains on my shirt. though know, it does. <laughs> there was a time when it was also fashionable and scholarly garb. but there was theological reasons for it there's theological reasons by the way clerical collars that we often associated with roman catholics uh, that was invented or brought into fashion by scottish presbyterians Uh, it was a style from the mid-1800s they would wear these collars not just the clergy but everyone Uh, and it was probably the last time scottish presbyterians or any presbyterian leaders set any kind of fashion trends um, But we did at one point. (laughs) But the real theological reason why we wear these black clothes, these robes, is so that you'd hopefully not see us, but that you'd hear the Word of God as we share it with you this morning. And that's the ultimate aim of discipleship. As the Lord grows us in our knowledge of Him and in our actions in the world and in our identities. That we as God's people would more and more know him, obey him, identify with him. And with our loving Savior who set us free from sin so that he's seen, not us. That the world would know and taste and see that he's good. That he loves them too. Let's pray together. O Lord, may we as your people abide in your word and thereby be free in you. May we know you more in the power of your resurrection and may we share in your sufferings becoming like you in your death that by any means possible, Lord, we would attain the resurrection from the dead. In you is our life. May we live it to your fullest by laying it down for you for one another we ask for your help in this we need you for we pray in Jesus name amen